I was trying to think of how to transition from what we just did to where we go next without making light of either. And I think there's really no easy way to do it, and so I'm not even going to try. Who we are is determined by what went before us. The command to remember, the responsibility never to forget, is a way of recognizing that the past and the present intersect in us. Their story shaped ours. It's for the same reason that we read God's Word. Yes, the words were written down many centuries ago, but that story is our story, too. It's why we've been reading the book of Acts, because the story of what God did in that ancient church is our story as well. The book of Acts talks about the beginnings of earliest Christianity and everything that God seeded into the church at the beginning. All those endowments of, of power and courage, of clarity around, <clears throat> around vision and purpose. All of that has been transmitted through the centuries to us. And this week we return to that story. I know it's been some weeks since we've been there. For those of you who have been tracking with our church through 2017, you know that we, we spent a fair bit of our time working through the first 10 chapters of Acts, and, and then we took a bit of a break. And, and we took a break in order to spend the month of October focusing on the issue of, of work and how the gospel intersects with the workplace. And we spent some Sundays lifting up the work of our mission partners, and we had a chance to hear from the Scott Mission and Christians Against Poverty and Compassion Canada. And as a quick aside, let me just say as a, as a note of celebration and gratitude that God worked through this congregation last week, and because of your generosity, uh, 30 kids were sponsored. Um, that's, uh, I think, an, outpour an outpouring of love and generosity that... I know represents significant commitment and will be life-changing, so thank you for that. But it does mean it has been some weeks since we were here. So let me say, if you have your Bibles, or if you have your phones open, your tablets, whatever they are, I hope you do, open them with me to the book of Acts, and let's return to the story of the early church. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. And we're going to look at verse 19 as a starting point. And then we're going to move from there just to a couple of brief verses in chapter 13. But let's start there. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word, but only among Jews. However, some of them, Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, and there they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, this is our theme verse, verse 23, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad 
and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and they taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. Now forward ahead with me to, to chapter 13. And let's just look at these first three verses describing the church at Antioch. Now, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, a Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and they sent them off. Church of Antioch. Uh, again, ancient church. Uh, long since, I think, buried under the sands of time and history. And yet, probably one of the most important, perhaps the most important churches in the history of Christianity. Remarkable things about the church in Antioch. You have a few of them written in your notes. The importance of reaching out to new groups of people. That comes forward with vivid clarity first in Antioch. Have a look at those verses. Uh, chapter 11, verses 19 and forward. Up to this moment, when Christians were taking the message about Jesus, they were taking it to people who already knew and believed in the Bible, the Old Testament part of it. They took it to the Jewish people. They took the gospel to Samaritans who also had the Old Testament. They may have interpreted parts of it differently, but, but they knew the stories. They took it to an Ethiopian man. We saw it in Acts chapter 8. They took it to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, in Acts chapter 10. But those people were described as God-fearers, which means they, they also knew and respected and honored the Bible, the Old Testament. This is the very first time in history, we're told here in verse 20, the very first time that some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, verse 20, they went to Antioch and they began to speak to non-Jews, to Greeks. Actually, the word there is Hellenist. The Hellenist means a person who is um, uh, polytheistic. They were part of that, that culture. The culture was just immersed in this, steeped in this pantheon of gods, polytheism, many gods, a god for everything. And they were given the gospel message. This is the first time Christianity escapes the bonds of culture. And many of them became Christians. And you see the result. Have a look again at chapter 13, if you still have your thumb in there, verse, verses 1 to 3. This is the very first church in Antioch. Look who the leaders are, prophets and teachers. And the, there's a list of names. Barnabas. Barnabas was a Cypriot Jew. He's bicultural. Simeon, called Niger. Incidentally, the, the word Niger, it's a Latin word. It means black. This was a proud black African man. It is one of the great tragedies of history that that good word was corrupted. A second G was added to it 
And it became a term of oppression and hatred and derision. This is a proud African leader in the life of the early church. Also, there is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was also in North Africa, but this group of people were not black, they're Arabic. And there was Menaean. We don't know much about him, but we know he was brought up with Herod, which means he's, he's kind of an upper crust person, right? And then there's Saul, not only Jewish, but, but a professor, essentially an academic. What we have here in Antioch is the very first multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class Christian church in history. Everything that you experience, that you know, hopefully that you treasure about MCBC, it began there. It didn't begin here. I'm sorry about that. We, we have our spiritual parentage back there in Antioch. And that's the reason that it's in Antioch for the first time that the followers of Jesus, who had been called his disciples, sometimes they were called people of the way, for the first time in Antioch they were called, did you catch it? Christians. Right. Because up until now, religion was attached to nations and cultures. Greeks had Greek religion and all of the Greek gods. Romans had Roman religion and all of their gods. But this is the first time that you have a system, a, a, a faith that transcends any one nation or any one culture. And they had to come up with a new name. And this is the name that they began to use in Antioch. They were called Christians, little Christs. You also see, if you, if you look through verses 2 and 3 of chapter three, 13, this is a praying church. And it's the first church that strategically sends out missionaries. 2017, MCBC set aside $120,000 to support mission work and mission partners. Where did that begin? It began in Antioch. They got the idea while they were fasting and praying. They got the idea from the Holy Spirit. And they sent out those early missionaries with fasting and with praying. This is a church that prayed, prayed, prayed. And out of their prayer was born the missionary enterprise of the church. And then we see in verses 25 and 26, if you go back a page to chapter 11, that people were converted and people were built up. They weren't just brought to faith. That's just the nursery, right? They had, they had preschool and primary school and high school and college. They were discipled. They were nurtured in the faith. And finally, we see in verses 27 to 29 that they reached out to the poor. When people had needs, they served people. Now, listen, wouldn't it be nice if we had a sermon on Acts chapters 11 and 13 that just went through all of those things? Outreach, cultural diversity, prayer, discipleship, caring for people in need. Five points. Perfect sermon. Well, I don't know whether five is the perfect number. Art's laughing. Three is the perfect number, right? Okay. Two points too many. Well, listen, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you a one-point sermon today. And what I'd like to do is take you to that key verse in the book of Acts. And I want to show you a single, easy-to-miss, overlooked key to gospel ministry. It's what Barnabas does in the middle of all of this. It says that after people, after this started to, to, be, to, 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 to grow, this, this unexpected outpouring of the gospel in Antioch, they sent Barnabas. And when he arrived, and they saw what the grace of God had done, Barnabas was glad. Are you with me there? And he encouraged them. 
He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man and filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at that one verse, because it's one of the, one of the themes of the text. It's not the main theme, but it is a main theme of the Bible. And because of the nature of our culture and because of the nature of church in our century, I, I think there's something here that we need to hear. I want to show you the ministry of Barnabas and why it's important and, and how to do it and kind of what the key is to all of it. First of all, what, what is it, the ministry of Barnabas? Incidentally, the word Barnabas his name itself, it just means the, the son of consolation or the son of comfort. Some would say the son of encouragement. Somehow his parents looked at young Barnabas and, and through discernment and through prayer, that they looked at him and they, think, they said that God's dream for you is that you are going to be a source of consolation and encouragement in the world. And they named him that. God bring us back to a day when, when parents sought God's will and, and, and just covered their kids with the awareness that they are created by and invited by God to live out a purpose in the world. What a good thing to give to their child. So Barnabas, son of comfort, son of encouragement, he arrived, he sees everything going on in Antioch, and he was overjoyed. And it says that he did what in your Bibles? He was overjoyed, he was happy, and he encouraged them. Now listen, if you go to four different translations, you are probably going to find four different ways of trying to translate what he does there. He exhorted them, it might say, if you have an older translation. He urged them. Uh, a newer translation says he, he got behind them. And then the one that you have uh, on the screen, and if you have the NIV in front of you, he encouraged them. Whenever you see a, um, a range of possibilities in translation like that, usually it's because the original word, the original word has such a broad lexical range that it, it can't be translated by single, by one English word. It's just too multidimensional. When you find something like that, that's a great place just to slow down and reflect and ponder the depth and the significance of what's going on. So what is going on here? The original word here in the Bible is the word parakaleo. You're never going to use that in conversation, but let's use it this morning. Say it. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. Right. Now, it's not one word. It's two, obviously. You can hear that. Parakaleo. The word kaleo means to call, to, to call people out, to, to point them towards a goal, to, to speak a truth into their life. It's a strong word, kaleo. You call out the best in someone. The word para is a word that we actually have in English, don't we? Paramedic, paralegal. These are people that come alongside others. Paramedic comes alongside medical professionals to support and help them in their work. Paralegal in the same way. The word para means to come alongside, to be sympathetic, to, to be near. It's kind of a softer word. So you have a bit of tension here. Parakaleo, a, a soft word and a, and a strong word. To call out. I mean, that, 
that feels kind of like a forceful thing. This is where you need to go. This is what you need to see. These are the things you ought to acknowledge. Sometimes the word here that we use, which has more strength, is to exhort. But we don't use that much anymore. At least I don't think we do. You use it in the office. You know, my boss is really exhorting me today. No, we, we tend not to use it. But it's a good word to exhort because it has that sense of strength to it. But on the other hand, the word para feels more sympathetic, more, more tender and gentle. It's kind of identifying with a person, standing there in their shoes. So we have a strong word and we have a tender word. And one of the problems is how do you put those together in English? Well, in front of you, you have one attempt to answer that, the word encouragement. And that might be the right word, I don't know. But I kind of have a sense that the word encouragement, it's not strong enough. It's not strong enough to capture everything that's there in parakaleo. Because it's not just holding someone's hand. It's not just being nice. It's stronger than that. On the other hand, you know, the words that we might choose, you know, cracking the whip and, you know, they feel too strong. Parakaleo, if you want, if you want an attempt at it, it's not a single word, it's more of a description. Parakaleo is a loving insistence on truth. It, it, it combines those two ideas, love and truth, and it mixes them together. And I guess the word encourage is probably okay. It might be as close as we get. At least it's got the word courage there in it. That has some strength to it. But in some ways, the, the better words are old words that we really don't use anymore. Words like beseech. <laughs> When's the last time you used that one? I called together my staff and I was beseeching them Yes, to align themselves to the vision and do their very best to meet the goals of the quarter. The word entreat. Yes, I was entreating my children about their responsibilities at home. Yeah. We're not going to use those, I guess. But, but you get the idea when we use the word encourage that we need to, to flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, let me show you why it's important. Verses 19 through 21, there in chapter 11, you have evangelism. You have people reaching out, talking about Christ, people finding faith. In verses 25 and 26, you've got instruction. You have have people being built up. You have them being discipled. Between those two things, Barnabas arrives in Antioch. Barnabas shows up, and he does what Barnabas does. Parakaleo. we could call it the, the paracoletic ministry, if you'd like. But don't do that outside of here. Nobody will know what you're talking about. Yeah. But this, this intense, personal, caring, exhortational ministry to people. And you see how important it is, because look what happens. It's interesting. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He did this. He encouraged them. Paracoleo. And what happened? A great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's interesting, because he didn't go there for that purpose. Jerusalem didn't send him as an evangelist. He didn't go there necessarily to preach him. He went there to encourage them, to give paracoletic ministry, this intensity of truth and love 
fused together. But here's the result. When he does that, everything else goes on hyperdrive. Everything that they are already doing gets amped up. The evangelism, the growth, the discipleship. It's like putting a turbocharger on the church. Let me put it this way. We cannot grow into the people that we're designed to be unless we are planted in this soil, the soil of Pericaleo. We need to be surrounded by people who are not so cowardly that they just affirm us no matter what, but also who are not so impatient and unloving that all they do is critique. We need that rich soil of encouragement, truth, and love. And without that, we don't grow. The person comes to you, and they're all about the truth, but they're not tender, they're not patient about it, you don't sense that they really care about you, you're just going to dismiss them. The defensive walls go up really high, and they're going to have no impact on your life. On the other hand, if a person just loves you, uh, and only ever just sort of holds your hand, never challenges you, There's going to be nothing there that will push you past the status quo in your life. You see, we're actually all addicts. There's a takeaway. (laughs) But we are in this sense. Whatever sin is distorting your life, it is by definition the one that you see the least or acknowledge its, its destructive power the least. And that's why it's having such a terrible effect on you. It means it's part of you is in denial about the uh, the terrible consequences of what it's doing. And all of that means that is unless unless there is an intervention, unless there are people around you who have within them this incredible mixture of of love and truth, uh, unless that they're unless they're at work in your life, you're not going to be able to escape the cycle of that addiction, and you will not change. And the reason it's so incredibly hard is that I don't think anybody naturally is like this. That just that really well-balanced mix of love and truth. Our personalities tend to tip to one side or the other. Some of us are people pleasers. We tend to be affirming, but we're really not direct. We hold back. We don't speak what needs to be said. Some of us are very happy giving direction and calling it out and calling a spade a spade. We're just not very patient or kind. We just want to get it done. Very few people hold it together well. But without those kind of people, we die. And if we don't have those kind of people, we don't grow. And the fact is that there's very little, I think, in in our culture and even the culture of the church that holds the two together and does it well. As soon as Barnabas shows up, he starts to bathe them in this paracoletic ministry, ministry of truth and love, and people start growing. Things start happening. It's, it's like fertilizer in the soil. Up, up come the stems and out go the leaves and emerging are the blossoms and down go the roots. And that's all very flowery. So let's... Let's get practical. What does it look like? What do you mean, Richard? What, what does it look like on the ground? And I want to be honest. I, I can't get a lot out of the text here. I think we've, we're going to wring it as hard as we can. But, but when we go to the rest of the Bible, 
the whole counsel of God. It's filled with teaching about this. One of the problems with this whole ministry, the ministry of encouragement, the paracoletic ministry, is that it kind of doesn't exist on its own. Uh, a multi-staff church. We bring them up here and say, here are, here are the pastors. This is my, my pastor of discipleship ministries. This is my pastor of youth and family ministries. Here's my children's mass pastor. This is the pastor of encouragement. We don't have a department of encouragement because we believe that somehow that seasons everything else that we do. It'd be like offering you a plate of food and says, here's the meat, here's the potatoes, here's the vegetables, and here's a pile of salt. No, no. We expect that the salt, that the spice, it gets, it gets rubbed into everything else. That's what encouragement is supposed to be. But because it kind of gets dispersed and rubbed into everything else, it's harder to pull out the unique descriptive characteristics of just what it is. Let me give you a couple of metaphors, if it helps. To practice this ministry, you are not just a florist. You're not just out there giving bouquets all the time. Aren't you beautiful? Isn't it perfect? It's just great. Don't change anything about you. <laughs> But you're also not a drill sergeant. Drop and give me 20. <laughs> and you're not a judge. You did what? Can't believe it. So what are you? Let me try and get at this. An encourager is the kind of person who can listen to what you say and capture it so well that when they feed it back to you, you're able to say, that's exactly what I was trying to say. You understand, you get me. They're good listeners, but they're not just good listeners. After capturing what it is you're trying to say, they push back. They're not afraid to push a little bit. And encourage you as someone who's transparent enough, honest enough, courageous enough that they're also willing to talk about their own struggles and how they connect without making it all about them. Real truth and love mixed together like this, it can only really happen face to face. I'm going to tell you why, and then I'm going to tell you why that makes it such a challenge for us. Truth is usually communicated in words. We speak it. Love is usually communicated without words. It's in the tone of our voice. It's in our affect, our body language. We lean in and, and we gaze closely and intently into a person's eyes. To do truth in love requires face-to-face. -face. Here's why that's hard. We have less of it than we've ever had. We know that this generation take longer to form those deep face-to-face -face relationships and have fewer of them that are long-lasting than any generation before. And do you know why? The Internet. Okay. Now listen, I am a tech weenie. I love the Internet. I love things technology. So don't, don't hear this as a diatribe against what God can do through that. But let's be honest, the Internet is a friend of information and an enemy of 
deep reflection. It's a friend of, of weak ties. It's an enemy of strong ties. On the internet, you can communicate a lot, but you cannot see the expression on a person's face when they hear your words. You cannot notice the change in their posture when you say something. You cannot smell the sweat that tells you they are up all night with anxiety and fear. You can't see the bags under their eyes. And you you tell me, well, you can do it on Skype. You can't. You can't. You can do truth fairly well. You can do love fairly well. But it's hard to do them together on the Internet. So we're living in a time when it's harder than ever to do it. It says in Hebrews 3.13, this is a famous verse, you might want to write it down. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness just means we're in denial. We're deceived about some of the things that are going on in our life. That's why we need people who can call those things out in truth and do it with love. Guess what that word exhort is translated as? Parakaleo. There's the word again. It says that we need to have people at work in our lives, and we need to have them daily, regularly. People who are not so cowardly that they won't give us honest feedback and critique, but not so unloving that they're going to do it roughly and abruptly. You need a cadre of those people in your life. You need to see them face to face regularly. And that. Honestly, that is my dream for our house churches, for our our small groups, our care groups. Those are not just fellowship gatherings. But in those little circles, you find two or three people who face-to-face in your life become the ones who can call you out and love you through. Without that, we die. I guess kind of lands us here where we usually land at the end of a sermon thinking, well, what do we do about it? If nobody does this well, if nobody does it naturally, but we all need it, what do we do? Let me show you something really interesting about this passage, and I don't think it's an accident. We're told that Barnabas is really good at it because, and it says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, that's It's not a mistake, and it's not a throwaway line. Sometimes it feels like it's a throwaway line in the church. Somebody who's full of the Spirit. The reason he was incredibly good at the paracletic ministry, encouragement, is that that the work of the Holy Spirit was so intense in his life that it just leaked out of him. Let me show you where this comes from. Let me take you to the upper room on the night before all of the events that take Jesus to the cross begin. Jesus is gathered together. This is John chapter 13. He's got his disciples around him. And he says, I'm about to leave you. And where I'm going, you cannot go. Disciples, they still don't quite get it. Peter's the first one to chime in. He says, what do you mean you're going somewhere we can't go? I will always go with you. Even if it means I die, I will go with you. Peter seems to know so very little of himself. Thomas says, 
How can we go with you? We don't know where you're going. Very pragmatic. Jesus looks at them and he says one of the saddest things that I think you find Jesus saying in the Bible. Have you been with me so long and still you do not know me? He knows they're not ready for what's coming next. They're not ready to face the darkness, not ready to to face the the looming persecution, not ready to bear the shoulder on their shoulders the mantle of leadership in the church. So how is he going to encourage them? How is he going to fill them with courage? He says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But if you actually look closely in in John chapter 13 through 16, where this account is, Many of your translations are actually going to use the word that Jesus says. He says, I'm going to send you the paraclete. Remember as a kid reading that, I said, how is a bird going to help? (laughs) I'm parakeet. The paraclete. Guess what word it is? Parakaleo. The noun form. The paraclete. Sometimes it's translated the advocate. You know why? What is it a defense attorney does? They stand there right next to you. It may feel like the whole world is against you, but they are there alongside you. But they're not just standing there in a supportive capacity. They're also speaking on your behalf. They're making an argument. They're appealing to a judge or to a jury on your behalf. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just holding your hand, but speaking truth. The only other place in the Bible where that word is used, paraclete, is in 1 John chapter 2. And here's what it says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, a paraclete. Jesus, the righteous one, the sacrifice for our sins. When you believe in him, he's not just standing beside you. He's not just inside you like a warm blanket wrapped around you. He's an advocate, speaking truth making an appeal. The Holy Spirit is doing within you what Jesus did for you. And so you're worried that people criticize you or you're upset about a loss of status or worldly power. You have him. The only way you become a person who is able to to walk on that paracletic beam without falling off to one side or the other, being a loving person, who can speak truth, or being a truthy person who can speak love, the only way you stay on the beam is if you've experienced Jesus doing it in your own life. And then you become, then you become a Barnabas person, a son of encouragement, a daughter of consolation, a disciple of the paracoletic ministry. Listen, don't be so busy that you can't do this. Don't be so scared of being involved in the life of another person that you won't do this. Don't be so cowardly about upsetting people that you don't say what needs to be said. And don't be so detached that that your eyes don't beam with love when you say it. You need to do this. And we need to receive this. Let's pray. I invite the worship team to join me here. Thank you, Father, for giving us this word of encouragement. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing our attention back to Jesus Christ, to our great advocate, to our example. I pray, Father, that you would make us a community of encouragement, a church filled with encouragers, filled with people who speak truth, who do it in love, who do it for each other. That we wouldn't be so hardened by, by the deceitfulness of sin in our own lives. I thank you for this call, this exhortation. Pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to respond to it, to be what you have called us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.